Welcome to the Who to Thunk It with Zeb podcast. This is episode one. This podcast, I'm just going to be talking about things that I find interesting after doing just a little bit of light research on the subject. Um, this uh, first episode, I'm going to be tackling the general category is historical figures. Now, I'm going to be doing different categories here and different topics, uh, but this first one I want to do on a historical figure I found very fascinating. Uh, this particular figure. His name, he goes by many names. If you Google it, it'll come up as Baron Roman Fjordorvik von Ungern Sternberg. Uh, however, if you, one of the main books about him, it, they cite his name as Freiherr Roman Nikolai Maximilian von Ungern Sternberg. So it all depends on who you hear it from. I'm going to be referring to him as the Baron simply the Baron. Um, some of these quotes, I think, refer to him as Ungern. So <clears throat> lots of names. And he was born January 10th, 1886 in Austria. And he died September 15th, 1921 in Russia at the age of 35. He didn't live very long, about the same length in life as Alexander the Great, actually. His name, Ungern, actually means reluctant or unwilling. And then Sternberg, so this is, that's a hyphenated part of his name, Ungern Sternberg, it's his family name, it's hyphenated. Ungern meaning reluctant or unwilling, and Sternberg meaning star mountain. Um, and I guess it has Jewish origins, uh, the Sternberg part. So, and I guess in the 30s, there was an anti-Semitic joke about it, that if someone was an Ungern Sternberg, the family, they were a reluctant Jew. Um which I find interesting. So he's like a, he's a reluctant or unwilling star mountain. Our, so the Baron had blondish red hair and a curved mustache, like in the olden movies where they have the like Meh, mustaches. And he had blackish blue eyes, as people said. He had multiple scars and injuries that made him look like the like a beast of a man. And there are pictures of him if you Google him. Um, the Baron Ungern Sternberg, if you Google him, you'll see him, but they're all black and white, so you can't really see the color of his hair or eyes. So we had to go off of what people said who actually met him. Now, before I get into his actual story, um, it should be note that he's one of those figures like Billy the Kid. There's very little known about him. The only things that are, that are f considered historical fact are few and far between. And there's a lot of things that are legend and myth that surround this guy. Um, and people find them absolutely fascinating, people like that. Like Billy the Kid, there's tons of books and movies about him. Um, but there's not that many about Unger and Sternberg. It's part of, part of the reasons why I wanted to do an episode about him. I find him very fascinating. It's just that he, it's almost like in history, he just missed his mark to be a huge historical figure. Here's a quote uh, from him. My name is surrounded with such hate and fear that no one can judge what is the truth and what is false, what is history and what myth, end quote. And at the end there, not what is myth, but it's literally was what and what myth. So he speaks kind of old timey. And that was him in 1921, the year of his death. In the 30s, there was a uh, Russian and French writer by the name of Vladimir Posner. And he writes, the Baron kept on escaping me. 
He confuses the catalogs of books in the libraries. He muddled up the addresses of people who had once known him. He afflicted some of them with loss of memory. He struck others dead. For example, Prince Tumber Malinowski, who was felled by paralysis and shot himself in Nice Hospital. He allowed no one to identify him. So this is a writer in the 30s, after the Baron's death, who's writing how when you try to look up Look him up. Bad things happen to you. Like, you know, very mystical. People think he was cursed. Um, so I thought that, you know, shrouded in mystery. The Baron's story is muddled with contradiction. He was mostly German, but the he recognizes himself as Russian. So he identifies as Russian, but he's mostly German and Austrian. And those two cultures were very different than even they used different calendars at the time. And some of the people who had tried to write stories about him were trying to take his early years in, uh, I think he lived in Estonia, and try to mix him up with Russian accounts. So German, his family, mostly German, but they identify as Russian. They use different calendars. So he was born January 10th, 1886. But if you go by the, I think it's the Julian Russian calendar, that would mean it's in late December of 1885. So some of the reports don't even know what year he was born. That's so, you know, two cultures writing stories about the same guy and they're conflicting because they're so different. Um, his, Like I said, his family claimed they're Russian royalty with some Mongolian heritage, but they were actually German and Hungarian and they weren't really royal at all i don't think his father his father was diagnosed clinically insane later in life and his his parents divorced shortly after uh the baron was born legend has it that as a young boy he was kicked out of boarding school um he kept getting in a lot of fights with the other kids but specifically the can the straw that broke the camel's back was his roommate had a pet bird like a pet owl and the legend is he rung the pet owl's neck because it was annoying him. So that's the kind of guy we're dealing with at a young age. So he gets kicked out of school for uh, choking the owl, and his dad enrolls him in the Marine Academy of St. Petersburg. And his grades are terrible there. He's not a scholastic hero. He's not very, that's a pattern that goes on. He's not very good in classrooms. Um, his grades sucked, and he hated school, so he volunteered to fight in the Russo-Japanese War. If you look it up, that was from 1904 to 1905, Russo-Japanese, Russian-Japanese War. Um, now, when he was in school at the Mar Marine Academy, he found his teachers to be kind of phonies and aristocratic. He didn't respect them much at all. But when he volunteered for war, that's when he found his true love for the industry of war. And not not the teachings of it, not the theoretical war but he loved the practice of war um he also found out that he loves asian culture he had immense respect for the japanese and their courage and like a lot of other russian officers did at the time he didn't see any action in that war the russo-japanese war but he came out as a corporal pretty nice um pretty nice big gig there this is the first taste of the far east that the baron will get and but it's not his last so he loved, this is his first time seeing Asia, and he's fascinated by it. Um, very different from the world he grew up in in Estonia. His grandfather was a privateer for the Indi for an Indian prince against the British. So a privateer, some people might not know, a privateer is basically a a pirate who 
freelance that does their own thing. They could be a pirate. They could just be a sailor. And during time of war, a government or an army or a navy will enlist these these people to fight for them. So it's one of the coolest gigs in history, I thought. So you're like a pirate, but specifically for this army. So it's like you can loot and pillage all you want, just not our ships and try to pinpoint these specific ships. It's really cool. So his grandfather was the one that introduces the Baron to Buddhism um, because, you know, he had his, his grandfather had the experience with India, this Indian prince. So I thought, you know, that's what gets him into Buddhism. In 1905, the Russian czars had pissed off the peasants so bad that they ended up raiding, the peasants ended up raiding the Ungern-Sternberg castle in Estonia. So at this time, the accounts said that peasants were treated terribly. They were living in like medieval times, you know, not much of a sewage system. So they just sort of dumped their waste in the street. They would, they had to fish and gather their own food. The government did not take care of them well. So they didn't look very good. They didn't bathe very well. And, um, uh, they looked awful. They were in the, basically in the dark ages. So, and this is the Baron's first real, or one of his first, uh, experiences with peasants, and he sees them storming his castle, ruining his life. So that's his understanding of the peasant class. He view, starts viewing them as trash that had been less misled by the Jews, which I guess political times then, his family was very anti-Semitic. They did not like Jewish people. Um, and so now the Baron has this idea in his head that he is better than peasants. You know, he royalty is ordained by god the czars are picked by god that's the whole idea of royalty and he's part of that because you know he identifies as royalty so he has this this idea of himself that he's better than peasants and it's not a start to make it quite the evil mix of a man here he's enrolled in the paul the first military academy after his castle's been sacked because where else is he going to go? His dad gets him this gig at this, and he becomes a cavalry cadet, you know, riding on horseback. And at that time, they would have had, like, spears and bolt-action rifles. Um, and he was appointed to a Cossack regiment under the cavalry general Paul von Ronenkampf. Now, Cossacks, uh, if <laughs> some of the stereotypes of a Cossack, they have really tall fur hats, they live in the, the Mongolian and Russian steppe, and they're pretty hardy people. I think the Cossacks are the ones that they actually train. They can train falcons to hunt and stuff. They're pretty hardy dudes, and they usually have, like, swords and stuff. And so his Cossack cavalry regiment, they were stationed in Siberia, so freezing cold. Their job was basically that of border patrol. They would go around the border and fight against Chinese bandits on the Asian steppe. So... If you're not familiar, the Asian steppe is like the Mongolian steppe. It's sort of, it's not really a grassland. It's not really a desert. There's not many trees. There are some trees here and there, but mostly what it is is very short foliage um, and hardly any civilization out there. It's a very hardy place and it's freezing cold. Um, there are huge, mig this time of history, there are huge migrations of antelopes. Um, since then have been decimated. I think they're very endangered now in 2020, but um, back then there would have been huge herds of them. And it just was a wild place. 
And he was seen as wearing the Baron wearing a tattered uniform. So he looked kind of grungy all the time. And he wore a sword on one hip and a pistol on the other. And he was just like this crazy guy out there on the step finding his way. He practiced a thing called military Buddhism, um, which sounds weird because most of us think Buddhism, this peaceful religion, finding inner peace and all that. Um, but it was kind of warped at the time in Mongolia. Um, there was one of the guys who read the main book, James Palmer. He wrote uh, The Bloody White Baron. That's a book. And he said that at the time, the Mongolian um, political leaders, they would sort of create, they would fabricate and twist prophecies to sort of lead the people in the way for political gain. Um, so you would be like, you know, don't, you know, the prophecy says don't buy Chinese tobacco because the Chinese were the ones that were oppressing the Mongolians at the time. So stuff like that would go on. So you think of Buddhism, it's very peaceful, but in Mongolian Buddhism was a little bit different. And like all religion it has its, its evil side. It's, it's hell basically. Um, and there was this prophecy, I guess, of a king to come out, a foreigner to come and conquer and he would be bathed in blood and all this stuff. And the Baron hears this and he's like, I'm your man. <laughs> I got you. I can do that. I can be this evil warlord. And during throughout his military Buddhism, he did have men underneath him. Remember he came out of corporal in the Russo Japanese war. So what he would do with his men, and he did this later on in life. He practiced it later on in life. His military Buddhism was all his men had to be celibate, no sex. Why? I don't know, but they had to be celibate. Uh, on the other hand, they could smoke as much hash and opium as they want and drink as much alcohol as they want. They could party till the cows come home. They just couldn't have sex. Another rule was that this is the main rule. You couldn't get soft. You know, you had to stay battle ready. You had to stay sharp. You had to be able to, you know, crack skulls basically. And if you found, this is a legend, if you found one of his men going soft, you know, not being ready for battle, you know, he's not showing up to drills or what have you. He would send him to his own version of like a trial by nature. Basically, he would make the, any of his men who would go on soft strip naked, jump into a freezing lake. Now, remember, this is this is in like Mongolia, the steppe. It's like freezing temperatures. And they jump into the lake. They come out and they'd have to fight off a pack of wolves. Now, like I said, this is legend. Who knows if this is true? If it is, it's amazing. Fight off a pack of wolves with nothing but in their birthday suit, no weapon. And most of them died, obviously. You'd either probably freeze if they didn't freeze to death and they fought off these wolves. Um, they would then become the elite soldiers in the Baron's regiment. You know, it's like you survived the, the trial by nature. You are from now on one of my most battle-hardened troops and you have some of the most respect around here so that goes on then 1913 the baron goes to mongolia to the capital of urga u-r-g-a that's the capital of mongolia and at the time any so a good idea of what urga was like at the time you know he's walking through the asian steppe this is not a place he can he can live on it on his own. He wouldn't be able to bring enough food and water for himself. I just listened to a, another podcast with Joe Rogan about an explorer in modern day who's going through Mongolia. And he said the same thing. You can't bring enough of your own. You have to basically depend on other civilizations to help you. And there was this unwritten rule in Mongolia back then, even today, that if 
a traveler comes to your doorstep and was like, I need food and water. I'm freezing. You help them. No questions asked. Because if you don't, I mean, everybody, like everybody would be dying out there. It's a crazy harsh world. So he gets to Urga. This is the capital city, though. This isn't out in the middle of nowhere. And when he gets there, he finds out also no sewer system. People are just, you know, they would flung, fling their waste into the streets. And if you went outside the city uh, or if you went outside um, in the city, you have to bring a stick with you because you have to beat off the hordes of dogs, starving dogs and elderly beggars. That's right. They said most of the beggars were elderly women because they couldn't their bodies weren't able to keep up with the harshness of the step of the wilderness. So they go to the city just to live a couple extra years and beg for spare change here and there. And you had to, people literally would take a stick with them to beat off these beggars and dogs. Not the best, you know, and it's kind of medieval kind of city. You know, this is in 1913. So to give you an idea, this was a city that with the, this is what James Palmer said in his book without, with the exception of a, the, a hunter walking through town with a rifle on his back, it looked like the dark ages. And, at the same time, other side of the world in North Carolina, you know, the Wright brothers have already, already, in, you know, figured out flight and are starting to come up with even better airplanes. So it's just, you know, Baron seeing this is like, what is going on here? So it's a pretty crazy area, um, pretty crazy city. And, but there also was a big trading post. So one of the main forms of currency was Chinese tea. So people currency with bricks of tea. Um, so it was a big trading port, but also kind of messy. And the Mongolians lived in these things. Um, they were like big tents. They, they, they were nomadic people. So even in their city, a lot of their city was like these big tents. So it's just a wild place to go. Um, and at the time, I guess Mongols didn't bathe that much. Uh, Mongols have a very they're like a lot of them are animists i know genghis khan was an animist basically you see you personify a lot of things in 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 the world you know um there's tree spirits there's rock spirits stuff like that well they believe that spirits from springs where people normally would bathe were evil and you didn't want to trespass against these these spring spirits so they didn't bathe like hardly ever so the stench would have been quite ripe in urga mongolia and at the time, they're fighting the Chinese for independence. That's Mongolia kept getting torn apart by Russians, by the Chinese. And at this time, they were being impressed by the Chinese. And fun part, um, the Baron actually fought at one point in his life to free Mongolia or to – he conquered Urga and freed it from the Chinese. So the Mongolian people think he's awesome. They view him as a Khan, you know, Genghis Khan. And James Palmer's book, he even writes, he's the last Khan of Mongolia, the last true Khan. He's revered as a god of war by most of Mongolian warriors. And at the time, this part blew my mind, the Dalai Lama at the time viewed him as this reincarnation of like patron saint of war, which is amazing. Like actually blessed him. That's a fa That's a fact. I think it's written down somewhere. So... Um, and these Russian travelers who spent time with the Baron, they wrote about him sniffing in the air for smoke to find the next civilization. So think about this dude. He's got this tattered uniform. He's got a sword and a pistol on him. He's traveling from yurt to yurt in Mongolian steppe, gets to Urga. It's just 
pretty nasty place. But on the way there, you know, some people would travel with him. They'd be like, hold up. He sniffs the air. He's like, oh, let's go that way. There's a town over there. Like, what? (laughs) You can see why legend and myth surrounded this guy. It's crazy. He's like an animal. And like I said, James Palmer's book, The Bloody White Baron, he he wrote that he became uh, mad over his short life. He got kind of lost his mind. So he used to be, you know, Russian royalty. And then when he goes to Mongolia, he starts, I don't want to say mad, I guess. It's more like he starts believing in these Mongolian religions, which I guess I'm not trying to say that's mad. I'm just saying it's it's different. You wouldn't expect it. And, you know, he's out here in Mongolia at the time. They don't see that many Europeans. So he's, you know, there's people probably flocking around him at all times. Um, his Mongol warriors worshipped him. He's pictured wearing a Russian uniform in the beginning uh, of his career, his military career. But towards the end, you know, this is kind of where the mad part comes in. This is a quote from James Palmer's book. He rode bare-chested like a Neanderthal, hung with bones and charms on his chest, his beard sprouting in all directions, and his chest smeared with dirt. So that's what he looked like towards the end of his life. Sounds like quite the <laughs> quite the character. Um and then Mongolia is where he spent a lot of time in his life. He loved the Mongol people. He loved Asia, but Mongolians were the most, let's say, hardiest of people. Uh, to Westerners, Mongolians is Mongolia as a country is regarded as this mystic place filled with ferocious warriors that at one time car- conquered the largest continu- continuous uh, empire in recorded history. So that's right. Genghis Khan and his descendants conquered to date the largest landlocked empire in his recorded history so there was the british empire but there was you know different islands and tons of sea the gang the genghis khan and his descendants that was the largest empire so a lot of westerners viewed it at this mystic place like wow um it is a desolate place this step and only the hardest that people can travel there because it's so harsh locals have an unspoken given rule like i said if if a traveler needs help you, f- you clothe them. You give them shelter. There's no questions asked. So anyway, that's Mongolia. <sighs> In 1914 to 1918, guess what happens? World War One. So, and the Baron was part of World War One. So this is our second war now. He's part of his Cossack cavalry regiment at the time. And his Cossack comrades actually had kicked him out of their regiment for being so rowdy and being so evil basically. But when World War II kicks off, they're like, we need you back. We need every, you know, all hands on deck. So he's happy to come back. World War I was like amazing for him. Before the war, the Baron was not doing so hot. He was poor. He was broke. He didn't have a job and he, and he was not a man of peacetime. So when war breaks out, he's like, ah, I'm relieved now. He gets reinvigorated by hero or reinvigorated, invigorated by war. He wants to become that hero. And he, he was to his men. He was seen as this brave, heroic uh, guy. He led a cavalry regiment in World War One with bolt action rifles and spears. So keep in mind, World War One is regarded as this crazy war. A lot of people think World War Two, you know a lot about it. But World War One was like uh, this, the first one. It's the first mass war of the world and they have machine guns, you know, they have these huge Gatling guns that can go shoot bullets way quicker than anything anyone's ever seen before. They have aviation has already been invented. They have tanks, right? 
And here he is on horseback with a spear and bolt action rifles. Absolute madness. His Cossack, the Cossack casualties during this time, the cavalry, um, were three to four times higher than any other regiment in the Russian army. Officers had a 170 casualty rate, and the foot soldiers below them had 200, 200% casualty rate. Um, now, when I read that, I thought, how's that? What does that mean? Uh, that means basically the regiment would die. All of them would either die or be uh, crippled entirely. And then the people who replaced them would also die or be crippled. <laughs> then they'd have to get more replacements and some of those guys would live. That's insane to me. And here's the Baron, and he survived all of it. <laughs> he did get about five injuries, but we'll get to that. The Baron was part of the invasion of eastern of the East Prussia and at the defeat at Tannenberg, where more there was 150,000 Russian soldiers at Tannenberg, 30,000 of them dead, okay? 100,000 of them were captured. And among these, the people who died were the Baron's cousin, Friedrich Undren Sturberg. So his cousin's dead, 29 other, you know, 30,000 other people are dead. 100,000 of them were captured. Only 10,000, that's one in 15, made it back to Russia alive and well, and the Baron was one of them. Here's a quote in, once again, James Palmer's The Bloody White Baron. Ungern's survival was due partly to blind luck, partly to an almost suicidal absence of fear. As he was to show winning his medals, he could do things so madly heroic that his enemies would often pause in sheer astonishment. So basically here he was at the front of these cavalry charges against machine guns and tanks. That's why so many of them died, but he never did. Um, he was at the Battle of Galatia fighting in the Carpathian Mountains. He volunteered to not only fight in these, but lead the most suicidal battles and charges. He survived with only five injuries, one of being a pretty cool scar, sword scar to the face. Um, so, like I said, beast of a man, he looked like. He wrote letters home to his to his other cousin, not the dead one, Friedrich, obviously. And these letters have been lost to history, but his cousin's reactions to them have not. His cousin said that the Baron wrote about the words if it was a release for him and a release from this sloth and mundane life of peacetime. And he loved it. He reveled in it. I guess that wasn't entirely unheard of at the time. Some people actually did enjoy wartime. His Cossack raiders didn't take prisoners, and they had a hard time differentiating between civilians and soldiers. So pretty ruthless dudes. At the end of World War I, he was awarded the Cross of St. George Fourth Class. Uh, so he gets a, gets a pretty nifty medal there. Uh, and think about it here the baron's fighting his own people the germans on behalf of mother russia so he's got this weird identity thing and he's already been to mongolia so he likes mongolians but he identifies as russian but he's actually german it's kind of weird in 1916 he's sentenced to military prison for a drunken brawl against one of his superiors which happens a lot that's why the uh, cossacks weren't too fond of him kicked him out um then boom so he's in prison he gets out 1917 the the uh russian civil war kicks off now the russian civil war um basically very general idea of what's going on here there was the royal czars of russia they're known as like the the, the white russians basically that's what and their royalty 
That's the side the Baron was on. The other ones were the Bolsheviks, or the communist reds of Russia. And the Baron hated them. Absolutely hated them. So from 1917 to 1922, we have the Russian Civil War. This is war number three he's in, right? He's assigned to the Black Baron, Pyotr Wrangel. That's the name of his commanding officer for the Russian Civil War. And what is now northern Iran, that's where he's assigned the Baron. Baron's regiment is sent to Mongolia by the white Russians to recruit fighters for the czars. So he goes to Mongolia. This is on the fringes of the Russian Empire at the time. Tried to recruit a bunch of people. He got to work trying to win the Russian Civil War, recruiting people that bordered Russia all over. So he's got like fringe people. He was he used an armored train. Um, some people called it a fake armored train because I don't think it had like artillery in it, but it looked like it did. He recruited Mongolian warriors, Chinese merchants. Japanese arms dealers, uh, quote-unquote volunteers, more like slaves. He also had Czechs and a few Americans from a Siberian expeditionary force. So he, he masses this army to help the Russian czars, the Russian whites, basically. And at this time, the, the Russian Red Guard, the communists, the Bolsheviks, they were really cruel to civilians. They were They would kick people out of their homes. Um, you know, they were, it's mild violence. They weren't just straight up murdering people. I guess they did sometimes, but for the most part, they would kick and slap and be like, get out of your house. This isn't yours anymore. And that made it really easy for the Baron to recruit people. Cause they're like, I hate those reds. I'll help you. So he made a stronghold in Ulaanbaatar that's spelled U-L-A-A-N-B-A-A-T-A-R. Love it. It's a, it's a great name. And he ruled over the region, giving himself the title of Baron. So this is where he actually becomes Baron, but it's just a cool name I call him throughout. So he welcomed all races and religions except for Jews. He still hates Jews. Um, and if a Jew did come to his Ulanbar, his little uh, region, they would be hung on sight. They were hanged on sight. Um, oh, and the only thing he hated more than Jews were the Bolsheviks, the Red Russians. So not a very nice guy. But all other religions were welcome. All other races were welcome. He became known as the Bloody Baron during this time. This is where he gets super evil. He's known for skinning people alive, feeding people to his pack of wolves, like he had his own personal pack of wolves he would feed them to. And this is this is during the time of the Dalai Lama. Um Tibetan Buddhism, patron saint of war. That's what he makes him. And he, the Dalai Lama calls him the reincarnation of their like God of war, Maha, Mahakala, Mahakala. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's just, if you Google M-A-H-A-K-A-L-A, Mahakala, it's a pretty wicked dude. He's got like six arms. He's got knives. He's all pissed and he's, he's black and he's got like flames everywhere. And so he had these death trains, during this time, transporting his enemies to the slaughter. Trains full of enemies that he would just murder as soon as they got to wherever he needed to take them. The Baron fought so that Mikhail Romanov, he was the Russian uh, next czar in line. He's the brother to Tsar Nicholas II, could rise to power. So he's fighting for Mikhail Romanov, right? He's like, I'm fighting for the whites. I want them to win because I want Mikhail to win. He One thing he didn't know was he was unaware that Mikhail was already dead in 18, 1918. He was dead. But he kept on fighting for the next three years. He didn't even know that he was dead. You know, they didn't have email 
back then. And mail was not a priority when a country's having a huge, bloody civil war. So he had no idea that he's fighting for a doomed cause. Like I said, if the Baron, he just missed his mark to be a huge historical figure. He's already fighting for a, de- a doomed cause, but the the army he amassed was insane. He tried to lead his army across the Gobi Desert. If you know anything about the Gobi Desert, you don't try to cross it. It's very difficult to do that. And if you do, you better be one of the greatest survival people of all time. But he wasn't. They were ill-prepared. They tried to get to Tibet, and so most of his army abandoned him. Um, at this point, he has just a very few people with him. And so then he's captured by the Red Army because he tried to we lead one last um, charge against in Russia against the Reds. And the Red Army's like, nope, we got you. He's put on a six-hour-long trial for his war crimes, just six hours long. And they sent him to a firing squad execution. That was his life. So he's doing all this crazy stuff. He's he's become, you know, the god of war. He he's conquered the the capital city of Mongolia. He's considered the last Khan of Mongolia. He's doing all these crazy things. Sure, he's evil, but he I'm talking influence here. He could have been huge. But he's fighting for a dude who's already dead for three years. It's crazy. So they sent him to a firing squad, and the legend is at the firing squad, he's standing there, total evil, you know, un unshook shooken by his predicament does not care. And he goes, fire away. That was his words. They said, he said, and one of the firing squad bullets hit one of the many medals. So whenever they would put someone to a firing squad this time, you know, dress, he is a military man, even as an enemy, let him wear his uniform, no matter how tattered and how many bones he has hanging from. He also had medals on his chest. One of the bullets from the firing squad ricochets off the metal, bounces off the ground and takes off one of the guy's legs in the firing squad, goes right into his shin they had bad medicine back then, bad medical practice, so they had to amputate it. Guy loses a leg. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, but that's one of the things they're not sure is actually true. I kind of like to think that it is. He's seen hoisting sometimes in history. You can look up pictures of him. I actually saw a couple pictures of him hoisting a flag with a swastika on it. Right? So here we have this dude, German-born. He hates Jews, and he's carrying around a flag of sw- uh, with a swastika on it. Like, oh, you might... Draw some connections there. Super evil dude, swastika, hates Jews. But no, uh, practically all historians agree there's no real connection with him and Hitler uh, or Nazism. He's probably just using the swastika for its meaning before the Nazis, which was uh, religious meaning. I think it had to do with like longevity in life and, and strength. Um, and it was from Hinduism. Mainly, mainly, but it was in almost all Asian religions, the swastika. It's just Hitler had to make it a thing. Just like he made that that uh, that mustache and the haircut. <laughs> Hitler Hitler made those things unacceptable in, in modern day. Also, the swastika, it's no longer accepted either. Uh, but it used to mean something really cool. So that's the Baron von Ungern Sternberg. It's awesome. Um and I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Who to Thunk It with Zeb. I'll be going over a couple of categories in the future. Um, I will be doing other historical figures because I love history. But I'll also be doing stuff, you know, anything from comic books, anything I'm passionate about. Comic books, technology, video games. May even You may even learn something along the way. So tune in.